Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. Driven by cost pressures, economics, technology advancements, and consumer expectations, healthcare systems are innovating on care models to achieve more connected care ecosystems. I'm here with Dynamics Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to discuss the drivers behind this innovation, what we've learned from macro models, ACOs, and direct contracting, and what leaders should be considering in building sustainable, scalable models. Let's start with the basics. When we say care model innovation, what specifically are we talking about? I think when we think of care model innovation, I, I think of care model as kind of this connected platform or this connected idea. And it really consists of several individual elements and components. And those components are the idea of the health systems or IDNs that kind of support it, how they're actually delivering and the design by which they are delivering that system, how they make decisions throughout the patient journey or decision support, the systems that they use are those clinical information systems. And there's so many ranging from EMRs to, you know, clinical testing, uh, IS systems, um, and also kind of this, the idea of self-management support in this community that exists. And then when you take all of these five components or, or several components, you kind of create this activated community um, and you, you hopefully can create this proactive model to attack healthcare in, in our country. And I think that it's important to mention that the idea of proactivity or the idea of upstream problem solving, you know, for generations and for a long time, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, the U.S. healthcare system has really been a reactionary idea, the idea that we go to the doctor when we're sick or we treat folks once a diagnosis has been made. We put out fires. We deal with emergency. The idea of a care model is really meant to stay upstream before the problems get um, identified. And we're never going to be perfect on that. It's just an imperfect idea. But um, the idea of dealing with problems upstream in healthcare through care model innovation is really important here. And, and you know, we think about one of those components, and that's the actual healthcare system itself. They're constantly challenged by this idea of care model innovation. And it's just because the world is changing and technology is changing so quickly. And these big behemoth healthcare systems struggle with things like new treatments and pharmacological and even non-pharmacological treatments. The idea of changing customer demands. You know, we talk a lot about consumerism and the fact that patients and their families are understanding and learning more and demand more in the healthcare system. You know, the, the pandemic has really exacerbated this issue, but the idea of fiscal and resource constraints, we already know that healthcare systems operate on thin margins. So um, that adds to the challenge in creating care model innovation. The idea that things around us are continuously changing from a demographics. You know, we have an aging society in the U.S. specifically, um, and that increases the occurrence of things like chronic disease and uh, increases, you know, new kind of age groups that we haven't had to treat in mass before. Um, you know, and you know, also there are limitations and challenges in the way we deliver healthcare in a traditional model. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of innovation around that, but there's still a lot of roadblocks that exist there. And, you know, the idea around 
the emphasis of transparency, the idea of evidence-based practice as a as a guideline and almost as a as a must-have, really creates challenges around driving this care model innovation. And I think that um, in order to promote effective improvement strategies, we have to get smarter as a collective around this care model and care model innovation. Ryan, as you were. Um talking about what's driving care model innovation. I mean, I think another as aspect of that is that healthcare is also a business, right? And we keep talking about the fact that business models are changing because the idea around, you know, the next generation of a healthcare ecosystem is really about doing things differently. So as you were walking through that, it kept coming, you know, up in my head thinking, yeah, it's, it's all these things are what's driving the need for new types of care models, and you layer that in with just the practical reality that healthcare is a business, and you see why we're seeing just so much activity in this space. I mean, I think back to 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was put first passed into to law, and the establishment of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and how that set the groundwork, right, for CMS to really invest in piloting um, many different types of care innovation models. I mean, to date, I think they've probably tested and are piloted or demonstrated about 90 to 95 innovation models. So we see this like dedicated focus from a, a large, you know, entity within the US healthcare system, really trying to see like what works, what doesn't work, how do you adjust it over time? How do you, you know, meet the needs of, of ultimately patients that are utilizing the system? And how do you deliver on cost, quality, right? And just delivering on a higher performing healthcare system. So I think these CMS pilots have been really interesting to watch over the course of the last decade. You know, and and Outside of the CMS pilots, what we have also seen is in the marketplace, like commercial markets, where plans and providers have adapted a version of an ACO model in their contracting process. So it's happening both in government programs and we're also seeing, you know, a lot of innovation occurring between plans and providers as they try to, to deliver better overall you know, and greater outcomes. Um, and I think all of it's eventually tied to what we call the quadruple aim, right? So in some way, shape or form, uh, entities are, and organizations are innovating on their care models because they are trying to um, achieve better outcomes. They're trying to improve the patient experience, improve the clinician experience, and ultimately lower costs in a very expensive US healthcare system. I think that's a really good point, Mindy. Speaking of the quadruple aim, I think one of the outcomes of the ACA uh, was this idea of ACOs or accountable care organizations. And, you know, we've seen the ups and downs of those over the last 10 to 12 years, and, and they are provider groups that accept the responsibility for cost and quality of care delivered to a specific group of patients or community of patients that's cared for by a multi-specialty group of clinicians. Their idea or the theoretical idea of ACOs is to manage these patients on that care continuum that we talk a lot about to make sure that the care is coordinated amongst all of these different providers, clinicians, and specialty groups um, to create better quality, 
better health outcomes and lower cost. And, you know, I mentioned many aspects of that quadruple aim. And, you know, we're talking about the care continuum to include folks like family practice um, and primary care physicians, but also cardiologists and orthopedic surgeons and orthopods and the health care system as a whole and skilled nursing facilities. And the idea is that these ACOs have agreed to take on the financial risk and then they kind of get the savings back to them once they meet these idea, meet these goals that have been created. Um, and I think what we're seeing is a little bit of a plateau, right? The total number of ACOs is down to about 477 in the US at the beginning of 2021. And we saw a pinnacle or the high of over 560 uh, just a couple of years ago. But I think there's a lot of reasons why that exists. Um, you know, ACOs are, are difficult, they're complex. There's a lot of changes that happen in the healthcare ecosystem. There are groups and areas that are doing things like ACO lights and creating things like MSOs, which are kind of the idea of an ACO, but with a little less rigor around them and allows them a little more freedom to manage the patient um, communities as a whole. Yeah, right. I think one of the things that that stands out to me with ACOs is just all the tinkering that's gone on through the CMS, right, in trialing different forms of ACOs. And, you know, inherently, providers don't like downside risk. But there has been a huge push from CMS, right, to not only have upside risk, but also have downside risk. Because what we know is that providers that have the capacity, the capabilities, and the competencies to handle downside risk have fared pretty well in these ACO models. So, you know, why wouldn't they want to participate in a model like this, even outside of the, the Medicare ACO model, but in commercial markets as well? And I think that's one of the things that, that has been interesting about this kind of care model innovation is that um, the adoption, right, by plans with commercial markets and, and forming different types of ACO models with their provider networks is something that we don't talk often about, but has been really active over the last 10 years, especially with the likes of Aetna and Cigna and some of the major major providers that have, or payers that have taken this ACO model out of the CMS um, you know, purview and started to adapt it to their their business models and their practices with their their own physician networks. Yeah, and if you think about the idea of ACOs, it goes back to this idea of care models that we kind of kick things off with. And the idea is to start to create care and healthcare before it becomes sick care. And you know, there's many iterations of this. And I think that one of the interesting paradoxes are the idea that downside risk is scary to healthcare systems. I mentioned kind of their thin profit margins. And the idea of downside risk is, is a little bit of a frightening proposition because you can't put your head around sometimes controlling the entire population. But what we're seeing in pockets is independent practices or small groups being very successful in managing downsize risk in kind of small batches. And the paradox that I mentioned a few minutes ago is the fact that we're seeing, we're going back to this idea of consolidation, seeing health systems purchase, integrate physician practice groups back into their health systems and hospitals. 
And then these practices kind of have to conform to a more traditional model of health system care. And it may, you know, ultimately stymie the ability and the flexibility for these smaller practices to really manage care upstream. Yeah, it's interesting when you mention, you know, smaller practices, I think that we've also seen the challenge that smaller practices have had, even when the adoption of MACRA, right, became law in 2015. I mean, larger practices have done okay in, in really not the MIPS program, but the APM program, but smaller practices that still qualified under the MIPS program of MACRA, I think I've really struggled. And I think it speaks to, right, like if you have some scale and you're able to hit all of those points, Ryan, that you had talked about earlier in in this episode around, you know, what's driving this change in, in care model innovation, I think some of the larger scale scale clinics and, and some of the, the systems that we often mention have the ability to handle that. But small practices kind of get left in the dust um, when we're talking about these types of models. I mean, the other thing that keeps coming to my mind, Ryan, as you're talking through some of these things, especially like, you know, ACOs and direct contracting and some of these other models is it is going to be so highly driven by the, the reimbursement and how does reimbursement kind of set the tone and, and shape, right, how successful these different types of care model innovations become and, and whether they become scalable and sustainable. If you think about it, you know, many health systems and hospitals and groups are still operating on a fee-for-service basis, even at a big portion of their population. And therefore, the idea of fee-for-service is that physicians and advanced providers and clinicians are being rewarded or compensated and based on the idea of running folks through their practice. And so if they're getting reimbursed for the amount of services they provide, even even a sect of their population, that means they're having to manage different ways of kind of practicing medicine, right? If, if, if I'm being compensated or, or a patient is, or my contract is being reimbursed through a fee-for-service model, it's going to be very difficult to pivot and start to manage risk when I know it's really about ensuring that I'm producing, right? And I'm producing and I'm seeing the patient smartly. Another really kind of innovation or evolution of care model is this idea of direct contracting that you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Mindy. And it really is intended to build on these past initiatives. We mentioned ACO, we've mentioned MACRA. Um, We haven't really mentioned the MSSP, which is the Medicare Shared Savings Program. But the idea is that direct contracting is that next evolution to leverage innovative approaches from Medicare Advantage plans um, and really think about transforming these risk-based agreements and offering what we call, we're calling capitated and partially capitated population-based payments to move, continue to move away from that traditional fee-for-service. You know, the idea, and it was a transition from presidential administrations, is to also broaden the participation in the CMS Innovation Center um, to allow folks to be more innovative in their care model. It's to empower beneficiaries and actually patients to engage in their care delivery through, you know, voluntary involvement. And then it's to reduce this provider burden. Um, you know, we talk, we we mention it, and maybe mention it not today, but the idea of this administrative burden. Um, is really overpowering. And the idea of direct contracting is meant to, to minimize that. 
Yeah, Ryan, it, the thing about direct contracting that's so interesting to me, it's like, what's sometimes what's old is new, right? I'm thinking back to the early 90s when we were talking about capitated models all the time. And, you know, at the time, providers just so disliked them because we were coming out of indemnity insurance models that really, you know, it was such a stark contrast. But you think about what the learnings have been using capitation as a form to kind of drive better care model innovation. And I think like we're at the right time now to start thinking about how you how do you renew direct contracting in a way that looks and feels different than what a capitated model looked like in the early 90s. I mean, there's a lot of learnings that have come through the years on how to apply it differently and, and leverage it differently and couple it with other, you know, other types of um, components to make it a stronger and kind of more palatable type of model that everybody can can kind of center on. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, we could have an entire podcast dedicated to direct contracting because it's it's brand new. It's the it's, you know, already under kind of scrutiny with the Biden administration and understanding the the different types that health systems and groups can kind of volunteer for. And we should see, you know, a lot more movement in the future on on which and how direct contracting evolves in the United States. So I'm I'm actually really interested to see how it how it builds. Um, and it, we'll, we shall see for sure. Right. I, I definitely think it's it's going to take a little bit of time to play itself out as, as most of these do. Um, but I think while we're seeing this type of direct contracting model really expand beyond CMS and, and into the marketplace, I mean, another option or another model that we're starting to see in the marketplace, and this has been, I, I would say, once again, that it's new, but it's relatively newer. And this is the whole idea of um, direct to employer contracting and how providers have really been dabbling in this for a while. I mean, I think, you know, employers who are a large payer in the system, right, have long been concerned about cost, quality, and access to care for their employees. And I think the opportunity here, right, is, is to bypass a lot of that those intermediaries that actually exist in the healthcare system and just develop these contracts between providers and employers, right? And it may be for specific types of services like back surgeries or joint replacement, but I think there's a real opportunity here for employers um, to really take advantage of some of the larger health systems that have the ability to almost, you know, from cradle to to really the end of a procedure, take their employees through that and it, at a set price. And that's what we're starting to see with these direct to employer models is that there are conditions, right, around what good looks like and what kind of payments are actually going to be made. So I think this one is a really interesting one too, because I think we're gonna see more of them. Um, you know, I'm thinking about some of the, the initial ones that we saw born out of this around like Lowe's right, home improvement would fly their into their employees to the Cleveland Clinic to have joint replacement surgery. And Cleveland Clinic would assume the risk, right, for ensuring the pre, post-op, and, and recovery piece of it. Um, and there were guarantees in place. So I do think this model is one that's been tested a little bit and have has seen positive results. And so, you know, I would not be surprised if we see more and more of these types of models kind of take shape. 
I, I agree. I think direct contracting to through employers really does eliminate, use the word bypass, that complex middleman process that is very confusing to me. Um, and, you know, the idea is to lower the cost without compromising the quality. You mentioned some of these big employers, you know, Walmart also partnered with, with Cleveland Clinic uh, around cardiac surgery. They've, they've partnered with Johns Hopkins around joint replacement uh, and, the, and the Mayo Clinic for, for things like transplants and, and oncology and cancer care. So it's really interesting. And I think it also, you know, has the potential to actually directly link costs to health outcomes. You know, it's really hard, I think, in the way in the traditional healthcare system for us to say, does this lower cost create a better outcome or quality? Some of these kind of direct programs, you can actually do some really good analysis on if they actually work. So, you know, I think, you know, it's been it's been kind of bubbling this idea of employer direct employer contracting for years now. And I think we probably will see an increase as well. With so many innovations to draw upon, what should healthcare leaders be considering in building sustainable, scalable care models? Jen, when I think about the effort that it takes, right, to go through a a next generation care model design, it goes beyond just the technical components. So we talked a lot about like reimbursement, right, and having the right types of of um, resources. I think there's a whole change management kind of mindset piece here that also needs to be accounted for because in many instances, it's not only doing things differently, but it's thinking differently. And so I think that's probably a major one that often gets overlooked. You know, in addition to that, like, you know, I think healthcare leaders need to be thinking about how does this impact right? My patients, how does it impact who I consider to be customers? What kind of capability does my organization have to not only handle um, different or varying levels of risk, but is it consistent across the organization? Do we have to really think strategically about where um, where we handle risk within our care model. So I think there's a bunch of, you know, different, like very tactical things, but also strategic at the same time that need to be pulled together when you're thinking about innovating on what has been your care model for a period of time. I think one, you know, one fundamental thing I would advise or, or consult with healthcare leaders is create a culture where everyone and all of the caregivers that work in your healthcare system or in your office understand what we're talking about, right? This is some complex stuff. So if you're able to kind of simply explain what we're trying to do in the healthcare system, and that is solve problems upstream, whether that's a problem with an actual um, patient or or an issue and, and treating them before the problem exists, or it's actually a process that you're trying to fix that will, you know, solve a problem before it happens. Really kind of break it down into the basics of how, what we mean by upstream problem solving or, or care model innovation, which really is kind of creating this world of healthcare versus sick care and, and really focus on that. And then also at the same time in a parallel path, ensure that you're building scalable models and making sure that there are those broad platforms that you're building, making sure that you're contacting and, and contracting with your uh, health plan partners in a value-based way and building these these models within your health system that really speak to 
care model innovation, some of the elements around the quadruple aim that we talked about before, you know, and it's easy to say, it's easy for us to kind of talk about it, but I think breaking it up into simple um, ideas and parts and getting your entire organization around what this means is a good first start. Thanks, Mindy and Ryan, for such an informative discussion. I think care model innovation is such an important part of the other trends we see around business model innovation and partnerships and the focus on value-based care. So I'm really excited to see how it all plays out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.